welcome to 2020, everybody. Hey, let's thank God for another year, another year. We got a new year to love him, serve him, and I'm excited about it. I hope you are too. Hey, you know, the holidays were great for the Huxford family. It's a little quieter than usual this year, which I'm good with that. Uh, but we were really, really blessed, and I hope you were as well. Uh, I just want to thank all y'all who shared your love with my family, all of you who baked me something. You are the devil. Okay, I'm telling you what, I enjoyed every mouthful of it. It took me till Easter to run it all off. But anyway, I appreciate that. I uh, just hope you know how much we love you and love your family as well. Now, lots of y'all have been asking questions, so let me just bring you up to speed on a little bit of family business as we get started here today. First, our 26 Christmas Eve services were just awesome. It was awesome, and we served more people than ever before. And yes, we did have snow in very specific areas at every campus on Christmas Eve. And that was so much fun, man. Our services were just packed. Uh, I want to thank all of you who came here to worship and serve. Uh, man, we just uh, had a great opportunity to share the gospel with a lot of folks. You know, on uh, at the five o'clock service on Christmas Eve, we had, I think, 50 seats, uh, you know, in this room here at Henderson uh, that were available. And at the three o'clock service, it was less than that. And that was true at most of our campuses on Christmas Eve. And if we had not had over a thousand of us attend Christmas Eve services on Sunday night in the pouring rain, uh, we would have had to put thousands of people in overflow seating. And can I just say how much I appreciate you and love you for just, you know, this is a family that is willing to make small sacrifices that will make a big difference. And I'm telling you, you're just the best, man. I love you. I love you. I also really enjoyed having Bob Russell preach for us last Sunday. Uh, man, Bob is a hero of mine. Uh, I love the way this guy has served the Lord all his life and is still going. Uh, man, he and Judy have a great marriage and family and ministry. And I'm just thankful for him and the example he sets for me and for, for all of us. And can I just say, I am thankful for you. The second week in December, we launched our uh, 2019 Christmas offering. And people are still given to that uh, to make a seat at the table uh, for folks at our downtown campus. Now, uh, they had their last service at the Savannah Theater on December 29th because our children's ministry has just outgrown the space across the street. It's just not big enough anymore. And some other stuff's going on there, too. So these, but let me just say, these folks at Savannah Theater have been amazing hosts for us from the day we launched our downtown campus. So can we just thank the Lord for the Meese family and for all of our friends at Savannah Theater for making a place for us, uh, making a place for us to serve downtown. Now, starting this week, our downtown campus is meeting at the Yamacraw Performing Arts Center uh, at Garrison Elementary School. Now, this is our property right here. It doesn't look too good right now, but it's going to look a lot better. This is Garrison Elementary School, and this is the Yamacraw Performing Arts Center, and it is awesome. Uh, we're going to be having worship there. We're going to be having all of our children's ministry there uh, until our new campus here, uh, our new campus under that guy right here, uh, is ready to go which we hope and pray it'll be ready to go in June. Now, I'm not saying which June, but a June soon, all right? But we're, we're hoping it'll be ready to go. Uh, we've been praying that we would be able to pay for the purchase and the renovation of this property without having to incur any debt at all. And friends, your generosity toward that initiative has just been inspiring. Uh, I'm telling you, so far in December, <laughs> We have received over $988,000 in gifts specifically for that seat at the table offering. Yeah, which brings a total sacrificial over the usual giving for that project to over $4.5 million since last Christmas. 
Man, let's praise the Lord, y'all. Praise the Lord. Come on. Now, more is still coming in every day. I mean, somebody gave me a check for the seat at the table offering yesterday. Uh, and I thank God because we're still about 500,000 short of being able to totally underwrite this project with our seat at the table offering. But man, I'm just praying you will continue to help us with this. But you know, friends, we just got to stop right now and thank God for the amazing heart of generosity and sacrifice that God has caused to well up in you this Christmas for the sake of lost people downtown and at SCAD and around the world. So would you just pray with me and let's just thank God. Let's just take a minute right now. Father, we don't want to just roll by this and go, yay, you blessed us without taking a moment to stop and say thank you. Thank you, Father, for being so generous to our church. Thank you for welling up a heart of generosity in our church. I thank you, Father, that there are so many people in this fellowship who are investing not just on earth, but investing in heaven. And I pray, God, that you would use those investments to just enable us to reach people from around the world as they come to our city uh, to go to SCAD, to serve in the military, Lord, uh, to serve in the ports. Uh, I pray, God, that you bless us as we reach those downtown residents, as we reach the urban poor in our city because of that campus. Father, you provide for everything you order. And Lord, you are providing in an amazing way. And we are just thankful, thankful, thankful for that. And we pray all this in the strong name of Jesus and all God's people said, amen, amen, amen. amen. All right, good. Family business meeting is over. <clears throat> this week, we're starting a new series of messages that we're calling Blind Spots. Now, I think this is going to be a great series because friends, Jan this is January. And every January, people make lots of New Year's resolutions. And basically what they talk about is a little change that they hope is going to make a big difference in the year ahead. And, you know, the one area in our lives where we all need to make a change the most, unfortunately, is the hardest thing in our life to focus on. And that is anything that is in a blind spot for you. Now, let me tell you two things I know about blind spots. Number one, everybody has one. Can I hear amen? amen? And number two, you can't see it. That's why we call it a blind spot. The common denominator of every blind spot is you can't see it. And there are reasons for that. Uh, maybe you don't want to see it. Uh, maybe you don't even want to see it. And, and, you know, that's why you don't look very hard. Or maybe because of your values or the way you were raised or your ego or insecurity or some baggage from your past. You're just blind to that. I read an astounding example of this over the holidays. I've been reading Malcolm Gladwell's new book, Talking to Strangers. And this book is about why communication is so hard in certain sectors between certain groups of people and how that's creating huge division in our world. And he reminded me of a story that I read in Sports Illustrated last December. He wrote about a horrible sexual assault case that occurred at a frat party at Stanford University a couple years ago when two students got blind drunk. I mean, blind drunk. I mean, these two were intentionally, you know, like they deserved it. I mean, standing blackout drunk. And later they found themselves as the victim and the perpetrator of a sexual assault. And neither one of them could remember anything. They couldn't remember leaving the party. They couldn't remember who they were with. They couldn't remember anything. Because starting at about four o'clock in the afternoon, they both had been drinking with the intention of just getting blind drunk. Now, the only reason they even knew what happened was two Swedish students, graduate students were bicycling by and they saw this thing happening on the lawn outside the frat house. And they stopped and broke it all up and called the police. And, and, and today, two years later, a vibrant, accomplished young woman 
says that her life and confidence and joy and courage has been totally shattered by that sexual assault. Uh, she literally describes herself as a barnacle. She says, I cannot operate in public without just having somebody to hang on to. And on the other side, a promising, accomplished young scholarship athlete went to prison for sexual assault. And he will be registering as a sex offender everywhere he lives in this country for the rest of his life. Now, Gladwell wrote, he wrote about this not to shame victims or to excuse predatory behavior, but to just show how dangerous that kind of unrestrained alcohol consumption is. He said, this is not a rape story. This is an alcohol story. This happened because of unrestrained alcohol consumption. Now his goal is to help women be less likely to become a, a victim of sexual assault, to help men become less likely to engage in sexual assault under the influence of alcohol, which Gladwell shows statistically is the common denominator for almost all sexual assault on college campuses in our country. Ironically, the Washington Post Kaiser Family Foundation study asked college students to list the measures that they thought would be most effective in reducing sexual assault on campus. And let me tell you what the top three were. Harsher punishment for aggressors, self-defense training for victims, teaching men to respect women more. Now we could have all predicted that. Then they asked these students, how many of you think it would be very effective to drink less? 33%. One third of the students thought that drinking less might have an effect on sexual assault on campus. How many thought that restrictions on drinking on campus would, would be very effective? If, if the campus had just said, you can't drink that much here, 15%. 15% of those students. Now, friends, that is insanity. Gladwell says these are contradictory positions. I mean, when you've got students who think it's a good idea to be trained in self-defense, but not a good idea to clamp down on drinking. What good is knowing self-defense techniques if you're blind drunk? I mean, students think it's a really good idea that men respect women more, sure. But in most cases of campus sexual assault, it's not about how men behave around women when they're sober. It's about how they behave around women when they are drunk. Now you know and I know that respect for other people requires us to restrain our prejudices and restrain our, our you know, appetites and our selfishness and at the same time summon our best values and our best motives. And that never happens, cannot happen when you are blind drunk. And yet the students surveyed do not believe for the most part that the amount they drink is directly related to the prevalence of campus sexual assault. Now friends, that's a blind spot. That is a very dangerous blind spot. But here's the reality. You may not have that one, but you've got blind spots, amen? I said, you've got blind spots, amen? <laughs> Listen, man, every one of us has blind spots. We, we all have places. Listen, our blind spots have taken all of us to places where a wiser us would not want to go. 
And our blind spot has led all of us to do things that a wiser version of us would not want to do. And our blind spots have cost all of us what a wiser version of us would not want to pay. Amen. And so for the next couple of weeks, we're going to talk about some of these blind spots that can hurt you and how you can focus on it and hopefully see it. Now, today, the blind spot we're going to talk about is guilt. Imagine the guilt that those two folks out in Palo Alto are carrying forward because of horrible decisions they made that night at a frat party. And friends, we all know what it's like to struggle with guilt because of bad decisions that we've made. But here's the good news. Every follower of Jesus and every person God has ever used in a great way in the past has a past. And every sinner has a future. Let's say this all together. Come on. Every follower of Jesus and every person that God has ever used has a past and every sinner has a future. Now, let me share with you this story of a man, in the, a man that the New Testament calls a man after God's own heart who struggled with horrible guilt in his past and then found amazing future because of the grace of God. It's found in 2 Samuel chapter 11. So turn with me to 2 Samuel 11. If you don't have your Bible with you, uh, we provide a Bible in most of our worship centers and you can turn to page 262 and and you can find it right there. Uh, This guy's name is David. Uh, David is literally one of the best known characters in the Bible. Uh, He wrote the 23rd Psalm and many other Psalms that have been an amazing source of comfort uh, for people who have heavy hearts. Uh, I think the reason that David is used by God to comfort so many people is that David has received that same comfort as God replaced his guilt uh, with a sense of grace. And so in uh, 2 Samuel 11, the the chapter starts off with these uh, telling words. I mean, it's it's so much in this first sentence. It says, in the spring, at the time when the kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army, but David remained in Jerusalem. Now, David made a classic leadership mistake here. David was a famous king. He's famous because he led from the front. Man, he went to battle with his troops. He led those guys. But for some reason, this time he lets his complacency override his leadership commitment. And he delegates his responsibility to General Joab. And then he just kind of hung out at the palace rather than roughing it on the ground with his troops. Now, that's a sense of entitlement. Now, hey, did your mama ever tell you idle hands are the devil's workshop? Your mama was right. (laughs) She was right. So David is kind of idle hands. He's hanging out on the balcony. And one night he sees this beautiful woman bathing on the roof of a building nearby. And rather than averting his gaze or going back inside or finding something positive to do, he just looks and looks and looks till he gets hooked. And then David goes beyond that into action. He sends one of his servants, hey, find out who that woman is. And then the servant comes back with that information. He says, her name is Bathsheba. She is the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Now, Uriah was a special forces guy that David had recruited. Dude, they had history together. He was one of David's mighty men. They they went to battle together. But David's appetite and his sense of entitlement overwhelmed overwhelmed his character and his commitment to God. And so he sends for Bathsheba and they bring her to the palace. And then he and Bathsheba compromise their sexual purity and they sleep together. And that's the end of the story, right? <laughs> no, that's the beginning. of. It. Listen, you choose when the story starts. You have no control over how the story ends. And a few weeks later, Bathsheba sends a message to the king in verse four. It says the woman conceived and sent word to David saying, I am pregnant. 
And you know, at this point, David's got a decision to make. Now, he can come clean and he can deal with this problem. He can confess his sin. He can deal with it in the most positive way. Or he can make it worse. And he chooses to make it much worse. You know what David thought? He thought, I'm going to have Uriah come back from the war. I'm going to get him to spend a few days at the house. I'm going to let him sleep with his wife. And then when the baby's born, the baby will be just a little bit premature. Uriah will never know that he wasn't really the dad. David is guilty as a dog and knows it. But he's conniving now to try to cover it up. Now, let me ask you a question. What do you do when you're trying to cover something up? (laughs) When you're guilty, what do you do? Uh, I heard about two women uh, who went to visit a friend who lived like 40 miles away. And it was time for them to go. They came out of the car and realized that the car was locked and the keys were in the ignition. uh, And they didn't have a way to get in the car. They didn't know what to do. And this was before the cell phone era. So they had to go back in the house. and, And the driver calls her husband at work. And says, I know you're going to be super frustrated, but man, I locked the keys in the car and I don't have any way to get in. Can you bring another set of keys from the house? And man, he was upset. They had to leave work and go get a spare set of keys and drive 40 miles away. And so he tells his wife, I'll do it. You know, and he leaves and goes and gets everything. And about a half hour later, the other woman looked at the back door of the car and it was unlocked. And she's like, what are you going to do? Your husband's going to be here in about 15 minutes. He's going to be ticked. And the woman said, I'm going to do what any other red-blooded American wife would do. She opened the door, pushed the lock down, slammed the thing with the keys in on the car. (laughs) Shut the door. Now, there are at least two ways to deal with guilt. One way is try to cover it up. And let me tell you, David's first response is cover it up. Now, look at how David tries to slam the door on this terrible mistake. In verse 6, David sent this word to Joab. Send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent him to David. And David arranges for Bathsheba's husband, you know, in hopes that, you know, he can use Uriah to cover up his own sin. Now he's going to sit down with Uriah and get a battle report. And then he's going to say, bro, thanks for serving. You need to go home and enjoy some time with your wife. But Uriah refuses to go home. Instead, he sleeps at the entrance of the palace with David's other servants. And man, when David hears this, he can't believe it. He's like, bro, why didn't you go home and spend some time with your wife? And Uriah said to David, you know, the Ark of the Covenant And Israel and Judah are staying in tents. My master Joab and my Lord's men are camped in the open fields. How in the world could I go to my house and eat and drink and lie with my wife? As surely as you live, I will not do such a thing. And when Uriah made this statement, David didn't get convicted about that. He didn't feel like, oh man, I wish I was the kind of guy that guy was. He didn't didn't repent. He went to plan B. He tries to get Uriah drunk in hopes that Uriah will go home and help David with this cover-up. But you know what? That didn't happen either. And you read the story and you find out that Uriah has more character drunk than David does sober. And I mean, finally, David sends Uriah back to the battle with orders in his hand for General Joab to station him up at the most dangerous place in the battle line in hopes that Uriah would be killed. And that's exactly what happens. The Israelites attack. Uh, They put Uriah up at the craziest place. The troops withdraw. Uriah is killed in battle, and after an appropriate time of grieving, uh, David takes his widow Bathsheba as his wife. And then months later, a little baby boy is born in David's mind. You know what David's thinking? I got this. I got it all worked out. Dude, everything looks good. Covered all the bases. My secret is safe. Done. And friends, we're going to see in these next few verses what we know in our own lives And that is that covering up sin never works for long. Sin cover-ups do not work for long. Covering up your guilt is lying to yourself. 
And I'm telling you, your heart and soul and body are going to feel the weight of that lie and the weight of that guilt until your life is completely out of balance. You know, William Justice wrote a book called Coping Constructively with Guilt. And he lists 37 ways that people lie to themselves to avoid guilt. And friends, I've tried most of them, uh, and I can tell you they don't work for long. They don't work for long. Uh, What about projection? Hey, let's blame other people. You know, this started in the Garden of Eden. Adam, Adam took it like a man and blamed his wife. Not my fault, somebody else's fault. Rationalization, ain't no big deal. Man, everybody does this. Who's going to get hurt? We're just going to do it one time. It's crazy how creative you can get. You know, rationalizing things when you know you're doing something wrong. Comparisons. Man, you think my sin's bad. You ought to see what everybody else is doing. Well, here's the one that worries me. I'm not even a Christian. And I'm better than that guy over there who says he is. And listen, I'm confident that there are a lot of emotionally healthy unbelievers who are morally superior to unemotionally healthy believers. But friends, that comparison does not negate the guilt and the weight of your own sin. What about suppression? I'm not talking about that ever. We're not going there. Don't talk to me about that. I will never admit my guilt. Just push it down. Push it down. You know what that's like? That's like being in a swimming pool and having somebody throw you nine tennis balls and you try to keep them all underwater at the same time. And I mean, they're popping up everywhere. You just, you know, it's exhausting. It doesn't work. It takes an enormous amount of energy and you can't sustain it. Man, you cannot submerge guilt for an extended period of time. It'll eat you alive. So some people, they go with distraction. You know what we're going to do? We're going to work, work, work. That's what we're going to do. Man, if I slow down, I might start thinking about stuff. So I'm going to keep running. I mean, this is where workaholism comes from. It's generally based on guilt or isolation. You know, I would... If I was a real believer, I wouldn't feel this way. So I'm not going to places and I'm not going to get around people that remind me of the issue that hadn't been resolved in my life. And that's why when people go through a horrible time, what's the first thing they quit doing? They quit going to church. They quit going to the very place that could help them the most. Or then there's escapism, you know, pop it, smoke it, snort it, drink it, eat it, buy it, go to Disney World. Feels great for a little while while you're on that high. But friends, none of those evasions solve anything. They just make it worse. And let me tell you, David forgot what some of us forget. That there is an all-seeing, all-knowing God who is either going to forgive you because you ask him to forgive that sin or the guilt and the consequences of that sin is going to eat you alive. And I'm telling you, soon after the birth of that baby in chapter 12, It says the Lord sent Nathan to David. Now, this is where the prophet Nathan uh, enters the story. And man, let me tell you, this is where the word of God enters David's life. He hadn't been listening to the word of God for a long time. I mean, he's cut that all off. But now God is sending a messenger into his life. And the word of God is coming right at him, just like it's going to come at some of us today. Man, Nathan's words confront David about his sexual sin and his cover up and the fact that he killed Uriah to protect himself. And then guilt and conviction for that sin comes down like a huge weight on David's heart. And you felt that before. I mean, some of us are feeling it right now. Maybe it's because something happened in high school or something you did at college. Maybe it happened on a business trip. Maybe it happened yesterday. Maybe the thing that you worry about the most happened years ago. Maybe it was a wrong decision that you made because of weakness or ignorance or fear. And the aftershock of that 
is still rocking your world today. Now let's talk for a few minutes here. Because you know people deal with guilt in three different ways. Some people feel no guilt. I mean, think about all the TV commentators who've been trash-talking Clemson for the last year. Those guys are crazy, all right? But you know, Paul talks about people who feel no guilt. In 1 Timothy 4, 2, he calls them hypocritical liars. He said they lie to themselves. They lie to everybody else. Their consciences have been seared as with a hot iron. Now, that's the only place in the New Testament that word is used. And this, this literally refers to a conscience that's been cauterized. Their conscience has been so damaged, they don't even feel guilt anymore. And Jeremiah, the prophet, talks about these folks. He says, are they ashamed of their detestable conduct? No, they have no shame at all. They don't even know how to blush. And I'll tell you, some people are so hardened by sin, they feel no guilt. Then there are healthy people who feel appropriate guilt. Now, this is where the Holy Spirit begins to convict you of sin. You know, appropriate guilt is when God's spirit starts stimulating your conscience over something that you know or you think is wrong. Man, appropriate guilt is a gentle but relentless call to repentance and restitution. Man, it seeks a resolution of this situation. We want to restart with a new outlook. Friends, guilt is appropriate if you have not repented of sin because that guilt will get you moving in the right direction. And man, when you start moving in the direction of repentance, dude, that's what unhooks you from guilt. No, listen, I don't think God intends for any follower of Jesus to ever struggle with guilt more than two or three minutes. Because, you know, guilt is like a warning light on the, you know, flashing on the control panel of your life. And man, if you respond appropriately, the light goes out because you dealt with the problem. I don't think God wants any of us to live with ongoing guilt. Now, Years later, when David would look back on this moment in his life, and he looks back on this season, he's going to write Psalm 103. And in Psalm 103, he says, as high as the heavens are above the earth, that's how great his love is for those who fear him. Man, he is so thankful for the love of God that God is focused on him. As far as the east is from the west, David said, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. Man, he is so thankful that God's love is unconditional, that God's forgiveness is complete. Now listen, man, Satan loves to throw past mistakes up in your face. But man, when God forgives you, you are never going to hear about that stuff from him again. This is why in 2 Corinthians 7, Paul said, Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. Everybody say, no regret. But worldly sorrow. That's unresolved guilt. That brings death. Now, because I love you, let me be super clear here. Godly sorrow is appropriate guilt. If you're having an affair today, if you're sleeping with somebody you're not married to, if you're pursuing a same-sex relationship, you should feel guilty. You are guilty. Man, if you gambled your whole paycheck away this week and now you can't afford to buy food for your family or pay your mortgage this month, Dude, you should feel guilty. Man, appropriate guilt shows that your heart's working right. Now, let's not forget that there are also people who feel unfounded guilt. Now, unfounded guilt is kind of a false guilt. You feel guilty and you shouldn't. I mean, sometimes it's self-imposed, you know. Uh, you, you haven't done anything wrong. You just like to take the blame for everything. Or sometimes this kind of guilt is kind of baked in by somebody else in your circle or in your family who constantly makes you feel less about yourself. Have y'all seen this T-shirt? 
Uh, my mother is a travel agent for guilt trips. Y'all ever seen this? Now, you know why that guy's face is not showing? He's afraid of his mama. That's why. He ain't showing his whole face. You know, my mother told me, <laughs> my mother told me that she finally just started laughing when her mom would try to put her on a guilt trip. I mean, she, she, my grandmother would just start it on my mom and mom would start giggling. She's like, what are you laughing about? She said, not taking that trip today. What trip are you talking about? That guilt trip. I took it yesterday, but I'm not taking it today, mom. Now, you know, unfortunately, unfounded guilt is self-imposed. And I think this may stem from everything from the family baggage to the fact that you're a perfectionist. And friends, that perfectionism is sin. But, but whatever your guilt is, whether it's appropriate or unfounded, it's a warning light that's flashing on the control panel of your life. And when you feel that guilt, man, you should start reading the Bible. You, you should pray. You should confess this to a trusted friend. You should seek some godly counseling, but please don't ignore it. Because if you don't ignore it, like David, maybe by God's grace, you'll move to that second way to deal with guilt, that healthy way to deal with this blind spot and get rid of this guilt. And that is to come clean about your sin. That's what David finally does. He comes clean. He stops hiding. He stops pretending. He stops lying. And he comes clean. Look at verse 13 of chapter 12. Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. No excuses, no rationalizations, no more lies. And then Nathan tells him, here's the good news, bro. The Lord has taken your sin away. Now, Nathan goes on to tell David that there are going to be some consequences that your sin triggered, and, and that's going to be unavoidable. Just because God forgives you does not mean consequences are going to go, go, go away. But, bro, you have asked for forgiveness, and God has forgiven this sin. Now, this is where I think we do some spiritual judo. You know what I'm talking about? Uh, you know, the, the devil tries to throw you with guilt. And, you know, in judo, you use the power of the attack against the attacker. And so the devil comes at you with this false guilt. And then, you know, God steps in and you take, he can take your past and your guilt and your worst sin and your worst day and make kind of a pivot move and, you know, not to condemn you, but so that you can find forgiveness and, and freedom and do live in gratitude to God. Now, David is going to write about this. He's going to look back on this season when God rescued him from this unbearable weight of guilt and set him free by forgiveness. And he's going to write about it in Psalm 31. So turn to the right uh, to the book of Psalms, Psalm chapter 31. This is on page 461 if you're using our blue Bible. But in Psalm 31, I want to read you the lyrics of a worship song that David wrote about this whole, whole nasty, guilty season of his life. Now that he is on the other side of forgiveness. Now, David begins by saying, blessed, man, happy. Happy is the one whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord does not count against him anymore. And in whose spirit there is no deceit. Now, man, look at these words in this verse. Blessed is he whose transgressions are forgiven. Transgression means to trespass. That means you knew it was wrong and you did it anyway. Blessed is the man whose sins are covered. Sin means to miss the mark. It's an archery term. It means you knew exactly what to do and you didn't do it. You missed the mark. Uh, blessed is the man whose deceit is no longer held against him. This means when you just start lying about stuff, you start deceiving people. David did all that. I mean, he did all of it with Bathsheba. But now he's on the other side of forgiveness. And as he writes about it, he remembers how it felt when he confessed these sins. Now, see if, this, see if this rings any bells with you. He says in verse 3, Man, when I kept silent about my sin, 
When I was hiding and lying and posing, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. Lord, day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. Man, my strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. That's what unresolved guilt feels like. Dude, it's exhausting. I mean, this is one of the you know, strongest leaders in biblical history. But look at the emotional duress this guy is experiencing because of unresolved guilt and unforgiven sin. And then here comes the boom in verse five. Don't miss this. Then he says, I acknowledge my sin to you and I did not cover up my iniquity. And I said, Lord, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And then you forgave me and you forgave the guilt of my sin. Now, friends, on the forgiveness side, David is reminded of his sin, but he is not defined by his sin. So let's learn a lesson from David tonight, because I'm telling you, Psalm 32, he kind of lays out a plan for how to come clean and how to have God forgive your sins and get rid of that guilt. Step one, acknowledgement. Man, you got to admit specifically and acknowledge that sin. You know, the best friend of Jesus is the guy who wrote the gospel of John. And John tells us if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all of our unrighteousness. Man, if you want to get rid of the guilt, you got to stop making excuses and stop trying to cover it up and, and acknowledge your sin. Step two is repentance. This word literally means a 180 degree change of direction. Man, you got to choose to turn and go the other way. Now, Peter was another really close friend of Jesus who made a million mistakes and lots of them are written right here in the New Testament. But as far as I can see, Peter didn't waste any time feeling guilty about that stuff. Because he knew, and he said in Acts chapter 3, man, if you repent and if you turn to God, your sins will be wiped out and times of refreshing will come from the Lord. Now, friends, repentance is what led David to confession. Confession is when you begin to verbalize your offense to God. You actually say out loud, confess to God or, or the people you've offended or the people you've wounded by your sin. And I know what some of y'all are thinking right now. Cam, bro, No. I, I, I would not be comfortable doing that. And I know. And that's why you're still dragging around a thousand pounds of guilt because you just do what you want to do. David is coaching us on doing what God wants us to do so we can actually get free of all of this guilt. And the only way you're going to do that if, is if, like David, you begin to show some contrition. Contrition means a broken and humble and contrite heart. Man, we know our sins break the heart of our Father in heaven. And King David is saying, when our sinful choices humble us and they start to break our heart, man, that's when it'll motivate us to change. And then finally, we'll get to step five, which is acceptance. And that's where you receive God's forgiveness. And man, you quit questioning it all the time. You quit worrying about stuff that you prayed about 10 years ago. Man, you show your trust in God by accepting his promise. Dude, you don't have to go through the rest of your life doubting whether God has forgiven you. Now, I recently heard about a little boy up in Washington, D.C., He's standing in front of the Washington Monument. There was a police officer standing by his side. And, and the little boy said to the officer, you know what? I'd like to buy this. <laughs> and the policeman thought he'd have a little bit of fun with the kid. He said, well, how much money you got? And he said, I got a dollar and 75 cents. And the cop said, that is not enough. He said, let me tell you three things about this. Number one, you could never afford to buy this monument. It's priceless. I, I mean, you could never afford this. And you never, if you had billions of dollars, you could not buy this. Because number two, it's not for sale. It's not for sale to anybody. And number three, if you're an American citizen, it already belongs to you. You don't have to buy it. Just enjoy it. 
And man, when I heard that story, I thought, you know, God's forgiveness is like that. It's priceless. You, you can't afford to buy forgiveness from God. It cost Jesus his life. There's no way you could afford that. And you won't ever be able to buy it or earn it because it's not for sale. Man, you can't bribe God into forgiving you. You can't suck it up and, and, and you know, just get better enough to deserve God's forgiveness. And thank God you don't have to. Because if you're a follower of Jesus, if you've put your trust in Jesus and what he did for you on the cross, man, forgiveness is already yours. Jesus paid for it for you. It's a free gift. Enjoy it. I think this is what Paul was trying to say when he wrote to his friends in Colossae. He said, you know, when you were dead in your sins, God made you alive in Christ. And then he forgave us all of our sins and canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away and nailed it to the cross. Now, you know, Paul, the guy who wrote that, was the guy who probably could have struggled with more guilt than any other writer of the New Testament. Before Paul became a follower of Jesus, he was a church hater. Man, he humiliated Christians every chance he got. He had the legal right to arrest them, seize their property, murdered some of them. And then Paul becomes a follower of Jesus and he has to struggle with that guilt because every time he went to Jerusalem, he would meet Christian kids whose parents were dead because of him. And then he would meet Christian parents whose kids were dead because of him. Now, you know, I'll tell you, there's a great movie that you could watch about this very issue. It's entitled Paul, Apostle of Christ. I don't know if you've seen this thing yet, but I would recommend it to you if you're struggling with guilt. Friends, Paul accepted what Jesus did for him on the cross when he died for all of our sins. And that's what he wrote about, the guilt that threatened to submerge him all the time. He said in Romans chapter 8, verse 1, there is now no condemnation for those of us who are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation. Man, if you're a follower of Jesus, your sins have been forgiven. There is no condemnation in the heart of God for you. No condemnation. And friends, you do not have to walk around feeling guilty for sin that Jesus has forgiven. Man, feeling guilty for you should be like taking out the trash. You know what? Nobody just lets the trash just build up and build up and build up in their house and run over and run over and run over. When you see the can getting full, you just take it out. You just dump it out. And man, when your can gets full of guilt, if you're a follower of Jesus, you can dump it at the foot of the cross. Man, I love the story of the family that was traveling on vacation and they stopped for gas. And, and when they got back in the car, a bumblebee got in the car. And one of the kids was deathly allergic to bee stings. In fact, he'd had a, a bee sting a few months earlier and the allergist warned the family that, man, this kid is super allergic. If he got another sting like that, it could be really critical for the kid. So when that bee got inside the car, he just freaked out. I mean, he dove over the back seat and he started crying and, and he's just trying to hide and the bees buzzing all around. And the dad is trying to figure out what to do. So he finally just pulled the car over and, and he just sat there. And when the bee came by him, he grabbed it. And he just held it in his hand for a few minutes. And then everybody saw the dad grimace. And then he let the bee go. And it started flying around again. And of course, the boy calmed down when he saw his dad had the bee. But when he let it go, he started panicking again. And his dad turned around and said, son, don't worry about that. Look at my hand. And his hand was already starting to swell. And the stinger for that bee was stuck in the palm of his dad's hand. He said, son, you don't need to worry about that stinger. It's right here in the palm of my hand. I took his sting. And so he can't hurt you anymore. All he can do is buzz around and make noise. And friends, when Jesus died for you on the cross, he took the sting of sin on himself so that you could be forgiven and free from guilt. He did that for you. Believe that. Father, thank you.
Thank you for this time you've given us today to think about, Lord, the freedom that we can all experience from guilt. We don't have to deal with the anxiety that causes. We don't have to deal, Lord, with the sense of, of depression that it can cause. We don't have to, Lord, struggle against all of that. Father, we can come to you, and though our sins are as scarlet, we know you will make them as white as snow. And Father, we just pray that you would begin to work in the lives of all of us here at church tonight. Lord, if there are those of us, Lord, who cast our sins at your feet years ago, I pray, God, that we would just be thankful tonight that, Lord, uh, you know, that's a burden we just don't have to carry anymore. If there are those of us here tonight, Lord, who've never made a commitment to Christ, I pray, God, that they would, that they would know that their grace is not as big as your disgrace, that their disgrace is not as big as your grace. And I pray, God, that there will be those who will come for forgiveness tonight to the only one who can grant it. And if there are any of us here tonight, Lord, who are followers of Jesus, and we're still burdened, lumbering under this burden of guilt, I just pray, God, that you would use these, this story tonight to help us find that freedom that you want for all of us. And we pray this in the strong name of Jesus, Lord. Amen.